Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond Fireside Chats. Welcome to In Beyond Fireside Chats. My name is Kasia and today I'll be speaking to Simon Saitoti from Africa Foundation. As Regional Program Manager for Africa Foundation in Kenya, Simon oversees all community development projects taking place around End Beyond Batelier Camp and End Beyond Kichwa Tembo Tented Camp on the outskirts of the famed Masai Mara. Simon will tell us about what life is like for the communities that live near one of the world's best-known game reserves, giving us a glimpse into the culture and traditions of Kenya's Masai tribe and how he draws on this background for his own life and work. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for the Africa Foundation. Well, uh, thank you so much, Cassia. Uh, thank you so much for having me today. My name's uh, Simon Saitoti. I come from the polygamous family. My dad is a uh, polygamous. He has four wives, and we are a total of 22 children <laughs> in the family, 14 boys and eight girls. But uh, from my mom, uh, we, we are six five boys and one girl, and I'm the firstborn in the house of six. And I'm, my mom also is the first wife. That means I'm the, I'm the firstborn in the family of <laughs> 22 children. I come from Saparingo village, a village that is just very closer to NBL Kichwetembe and Batlia camp here in Masai Mara. And, and that is where I grew up, but I went to school in, in a different community or in a different village as there was no school closer to my home. So I went to Mruto to primary school, which is around eight kilometers from my, my village. That's where I went to uh, my primary school and I went to uh, secondary school in, in a nearby town. When I say nearby, it's around uh, 55 kilometers from my village, but I went to boarding there. After secondary school, I, I went to Uganda and after there I joined Macquarie University where I pursue bachelor degree in environmental management. And after there, I came back home, starting hustling and trying life. I joined Africa Foundation in the year 2015. That's where I'm working up to now. I'm a husband and I'm a father. I have one wife so far. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a master, so probably, I don't know, the things might change. I have two boys, uh, 10, 10 years, 5 years, and 1-year-old girl. I've been working for Africa Foundation for about 5 years now. I coordinate all the Africa Foundation programs here in Kenya. For example, I sit with uh, several communities during project identifications, and also I offer site in the implementation of all the ongoing projects in these communities, I also host guest talks concerning Africa Foundation and community programs here at Kichwa Tembo and Batlia Camps. Apart from hosting them and talking about what Africa Foundation and NBO does here in Kenya, I also do community trips with those guests. So in brief, I coordinate all the Africa Foundation programs here in Kenya. That's quite a lot of responsibility and, and, and quite a wide <laughs> range of things that you do. Simon, yeah, you've yeah. said that you yourself, you've come back and you live in the community that, that you were born in, which is one of the communities very near to Kichwa Tembo and Batalia Camp. Yeah. Can you describe about what life is like yeah. for these yeah. communities? You know, where exactly are they situated? What are the nearest towns? What do people make a living 
from what are some of the challenges and some of the daily problems that yeah, they face? Yeah, yeah. Saparingo village, it's, it's a pretty, it's not, it's not that big village. So yeah, it's a small village. People are pastoralists. That means they don't do any kind of cultivation. The reason being, it's just very closer to the, to the game reserve. If you put any garden there, definitely it will be destroyed by wild animals. But again, uh, as a Maasai culture, livestock is our, is our livelihood. That is cows, sheep, and goats. Most people in this village now, they live in personal homes. When I say personal homes, uh, it's not like a manyata. You know, when you talk of manyata, it's like a group of people living in one concentrated area. When you go to Saparingo, you find people living uh, individually. Like now, it's just two years ago, I moved away from my dad's home. So I have my own home. Also, I started my own home. So that means people live individually. Closer shopping center is all the way to Emurutoto, which is around eight kilometers from there. But nowadays, mode of transport going to the shopping center, if people want like sugar, salt, anything from the shop, you have to use a motorbike. <laughs> there are motorbikes that operates that they go to the shopping center. But the good news is there is a school right now in the village called Saparenko Primary School. Uh, that means all the kids can attend the school in this village. That is, that is a very good transformation. It, there used to be no school in this particular village. So right now we have a school. So all the kids are going to the school. And the, the other bigger challenge is we don't have a closer health center or a clinic. The closest clinic is the one that was just recently built by Africa Foundation and beyond at Emurutoto. That is where, in case of any health requirements, people have to go there. So you find that in case of any emergency at night, uh, people have to wait until morning because you can't walk at night and given chance that uh, people don't have vehicles and all of that, so you can't go at night. And, and unfortunate, we have received dangerous cases like people losing life when they're trying to wait in the morning. People become more serious before even it reaches morning hours. So that is the major challenge right now in the village, the issue of health facility. So it's, it can be pretty dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yes, you can't imagine right now when the wild beasts are coming close, animals like elephants, they hate wild beasts. The only peaceful place that they can go for hiding is around Saparingo village because there is a big forest near our village called Query Forest. And this forest, we nickname it elephant bedroom, but in a Maasai language, reason being our elders and our fathers believe that all the elephants in Maasai Mara go to Nyekweri forest to give birth. And every, every day in the morning, you see elephants come from this forest going down to Mara with little babies. In fact, there was even a time in my village, uh, young boys, uh, they catch a little baby elephant. I think it became, it became morning. And the elephants were like, they need to move to the game reserve. And it became daylight before even they go to the game reserve. And they left the baby. But the boys reported to the park authorities. And the park authorities came and they fetched the baby elephants. And the baby elephants was taken to the elephant orphanage in Nairobi uh, to be raised up. Yeah, it, it's just a very unique uh, village. 
and the community have decided to keep on the forest. That forest is actually there. And, and the elephant, as we speak right now, in fact, we are not giving the young children to follow like cows and goats because there are a lot of elephants in the village right now. So movement is limited. And we have other animals like leopards, even lions sometimes move up there in the village for easy prey and other dangerous animals. So the fact that it's situated so close to the reserve, I think that's part of the reason why it's so difficult to move around after dark. And I remember being in the village myself and seeing the animals walking around. You can come around a corner and see some zebras or giraffes. Sometimes it might be something a little bit more dangerous than just a zebra. Yeah, yeah. And again, another challenge is about high school. We don't have a secondary school around uh, the village. So once the children are done with primary school, they have to go to several kilometers to get a high school. That means for those people who cannot afford boarding facilities for our children to be in boarding, it means that the children will just finish primary level and stay in the village. Generally, that is in brief the life of people in Sabarengo village. Simon, you've mentioned a couple of times the Maasai tribe, and I know that you are a Maasai yourself. Can you tell us more about the Maasai, about the traditional way of life and the traditional beliefs? Maasai way of life and their beliefs. One, the Maasai only depends on livestock because they don't believe in any other source of livelihood. They only believe in cows, goats, and sheep. And they drive their food in this livestock, like uh, blood from the cow, meat, and milk. That is the only food the master used to depend on. They also have a dress code. Their dress code is very unique. The red sugar, the red blanket that they keep on. It's, it's a symbol of Maasai. And it has to go with the, the sticks that you usually see them holding and the sword. So they put on the red blanket and having some sticks and the sword. And it's funny because the government recognizes this dress code. If you go to the capital city, Nairobi, right now, if you are dressed in a Maasai code, you have a sword, you have uh, your own sticks, and you have the red blanket, you can be allowed to enter any office with those. Other people call it weapons, but we don't call them weapons. We call them uniform. It's our uniform. So you can even enter even a state house with your sword. <laughs> but if you're dressing in any other kind of cloth and you're having a sword, you'll be arrested by police. <laughs> if you're a Maasai and you have your own dress attires, including the sword, you can walk anywhere because Maasai don't see these things as weapons. They use it as like uniform. And that is what identify who is a Maasai. We have also our own culture of migration. You find us, the Maasai, migrating from one particular area to another for search of pastures. Again, I can use a very good example of the city. If you come during drought season, you find Maasai that lives closer to Nairobi. They take their livestock inside the city, along the streets, so long as there is that green pasture, they can take anywhere. I remember very well, I think two years ago, when the city council wanted to chase the Maasai away and the president came out and said, why do you want to chase the poor people away? And they're just grazing their livestock. When rains come, they automatically go back. 
It means our migration is being recognized everywhere and it is known that it is our culture. They don't harm anyone. They don't harm any property. They don't steal anything from the city. They just after the green pasture for their livestock. And when it rains, they go back to their villages. Also, Maasai are very well known by hosting other communities. It's becoming a kind of threat to, uh, to us. I don't know whether it's a threat or what. The Maasai are very polite. If you just ask a Maasai, can I put a house next to your house? They, they have no problem. So long as you come and obey the rules that are there, you don't come closer to them and you start to say, this is my boundary, don't bring your cows here. If you build your house and you have no problem with your neighbor's cows coming to closer to your house, then they'll give you a chance. This has made community Maasai land for other communities to come in. They are, they are bringing a different culture. They are almost overtaking the Maasai culture because one, you allow someone from another community coming to you, you find your children going to your neighbor's house. They'll see something unique that they have never seen. They go there and test a different kind of food. And you hear by the end of the day, they'll tell you, hey, we ate something funny in that house. Can you also prepare for us? <laughs> and, and it's something that you cannot get. You don't know even how to prepare. I, I don't know whether it's a challenge. I don't know whether it's a threat to us. But we are getting a lot of other communities getting inside us because of our politeness, but bringing a different culture and children are learning uh, these other cultures also. And when you go to our school, if you go to Safarengo right now, we have a season whereby we have music festivals. We only perform Maasai dances. But right now, you go to a school and it's funny. You find children performing Maasai dance, Kikuyu dance, the Luo dance, the Kisi dance. <laughs> and you ask yourself, where are these kids learning these other dances? It's because of these other communities coming inside us and their children are teaching our children also their, their cultures. It's a great opportunity to learn, but it's also almost a threat to diluting the culture and the traditions that you have. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Simon, from the way you speak, it's obvious that you're very, very proud of the Maasai way of life and of the Maasai traditions. But I know that you've also broken some of them in, in your life and in the choices that you've made. You spoke about going away to study. Yeah. I know that yeah. you, you mentioned you have one wife and I know that you chose her yourself. It was not a choice made by your parents. So what inspired you? to make those changes yeah. where you said, okay, yeah. yes, I acknowledge the traditions, yeah. but maybe these are the ones that, that I don't necessarily want to follow in my life. And, and who were the people who supported you along the way? Uh, firstly, what inspired me to, to take this drastic decision? Uh, I have to recognize and I have to thank and beyond for what they did in my life in way, way back in primary by starting these conservation lessons during the years in 90s when I was in primary, actually changed all the narratives about me. I still remember very well what our conservation teacher, who was the, the end beyond guy in 1990, James Morinde, used to tell us. We did a couple of conservation lessons. I can vividly remember one when James Morinde was telling us that it is a high time 
that you should start thinking to study hard so that you come back and protect Masai Mara for future generation. Because no one will come from somewhere else. The guests who are coming to Masai Mara are just visitors. And they'll come and they'll go back. But they'll only continue to come back if those people who are living closer to Masai Mara will take care of these animals. And it is you, the people I'm carrying in this car right now, it's you to study hard, it's you to forego some of the traditions and come back and work for Masai Mara to protect the wild animals in order for you to continue to see these guests who are coming. So from that particular day, everything changed about my thought because I was thinking after primary, ha, huh, I need to be a warrior. I need to put the red oak in my head and go and kill a lion. But because of that conservation lesson, everything changes. I started knowing that I need to go for a high school. And for me to go for a high school, I need to work hard in my primary. So, and I started to see the need to bring change in my community, in my feeling, because James Morinda was not from my village. He was from Emurutoto community. And from my village, no one was working in Masai Mara. No one, no one at all. In fact, uh, I was among the first people to be in school. So if there was someone to be employed, I'd probably be the first one. So from that day, I started changing my mind. And I started saying, why is there that there is no one working in my village in, here in Masai Mara? Why? And I realized that it's because people have not gone to school and people are still believing and following some strict cultures that were not very beneficial. Like that one of being a warrior and killing a lion. And, and I, I saw that as an, a disadvantage. And that's why I decided to take that change. Me, myself, I said, no, I need to work hard. I need to go for studies and bring a change to my community and let me be a role model to others. So I was following the footstep of this guy, James Morinde. And I saw his home because it was closer to our school. He was among the first people to build a house with a, an iron sheet. And we admired it. <laughs> and, and he was an old man. We admired it when we see him in the steering wheel, when he was like driving, speaking good English. And we said, wow, we can be like him. And that is the first time things started coming inside my mind that oh, can't I be like him? When I decided this, I thanked my parents because they supported me. When I needed anything for schooling, they could really work hard. And my dad was among the first people to accept selling cows for my school fees. When I saw my dad could sell cows for my school fees, well, I knew that uh, for sure I have a great support here. And from there, I said, okay, since my dad is, has accepted this, uh, I don't need to disappoint him. So I started working hard until I went to high school where I put on my first shoe. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and my dad supported me and also uh, my mom because I could remember in primary there was a time I wanted to drop out because my age mates were busy in the village, other joint warrior hoods 
And and when I came back to the village, I was filled as if I'm I'm less of a man. But the encouragement from the mother actually was very strong, and and he, she encouraged me hugely. And sometimes even uh, when I go to school, it rains during daytime, and there are rivers that I cannot cross once it rains, and I sleep in any neighborhood that is closer to my school. And in the following morning, I just go back to school. Every day when I don't come back home, the first thing she does in the morning, she will come straight to school. She walk all the way from home to school to see if I'm there. And she used to be like that. And she just come and beep in the window. She knew where I sit. When she see, when she see me that I'm sitting, she just went back home. She, she, don't, she doesn't even talk to me. She just makes sure that I'm there and she goes back home. So that is the great support I got from the parent all the way to secondary, to university. Uh, the greatest support I got from my father during marriage time is when I finished my secondary school, I reached home. I found them. They wanted me to marry the daughter of this friend of my dad. So I came back from high school and I reached home and, and my dad called me and he told me that uh, we discussed with your mother and we were just waiting for you so that we can take the engagement items to this particular family. Because I've already talked to that uh, elder and he has accepted. So we were just waiting for it. For the first step that I realized that my dad loves me is for him to wait for me so that before even they go for this engagement. Because in other, other marriage engagement, they usually don't wait. You just come home and you are told that you're going to marry the daughter of so-and-so-and-so. But for this case, for him to wait for me, just to let me know, that was the first love I realized. And then I, I told my dad, Dad, I'm feeling that when I get married right now, I feel that I'll not even finish my studies. And I feel that I'll not achieve my dream of becoming one of the success people in this village. I'll feel that I'll not be a good role model. And my age mate will laugh at me because we will still come back to the same level. They'll ask me, you wasted your time, you went to school, look, we are, we are doing the same tradition. What was the purpose of you going to school? So, hey, my dad listened to me. And, and at the end of it, he told me, what, is, what do you want? I asked him, dad, please, I'm not telling you don't choose a wife for me. The only thing I'm asking you is give me some time. I need first to go to school, and when that time comes for me to marry, I'll come back and tell you that I'm ready to marry. And he tell me, as you wish, my son, as you wish, just do as you wish. And I was the most happiest that day, the most happiest man. That gave me more strength to go back to school and study. When I was in university in Kampala, just walking in the street of the university, I came across this Maasai lady in the university. Very, very unique. You can't imagine you're in, in a different country. She had me talking on a phone in Maasai. And she also looked at me. And that is how we met. Just because she had that I'm a Maasai. And the way she looked at me, I saw the face. I saw the sign that she's a Maasai. Because there is a way you can look for a person and you just knew that this is a Maasai. And that's, uh, that's how we started our life. 
But before even I brought her home, I had to come and tell my dad that I found this girl from this family. I want you to see whether it's the right person for me to marry. Because I did want just to bring her home before even I informed my parents. And after I told my dad, he said, yeah, after after some, some months, he came back to me. He said, I have done all the inquiry. It's a good family. And you can marry. Wow. So I got that opportunity when I brought her home. We broke a lot of traditions. Eating from the same plate, of which it was a taboo. <laughs> In, in Maasai, <laughs> you can't imagine, you can't imagine a Maasai man eating in the same plate with a lady. And, and that's, that, that, that is my wife started. She started that because she also wanted to bring a, a change in that family. That eating in the same plate with your wife is not a big deal. You know, in Maasai, is that uh, a wife, before she serves the children, or before even she eats anything, the first person to eat is, is the man. You know, the Maasai live like the lion family. <laughs> you know, the lions, when they kill, they first leave the, the male lion to eat the flesh part of it. <laughs> and then the, now the female and the children can come and eat the rest. That is the same way how Maasai behave in their home state. So my wife said, okay, she served food in the house and we're still living in the same roof with my mom and my brothers, my younger sister. So when my wife served food, she, <laughs> my mom counted the plates and she saw that there's one plate that is missing. And my mom asked her, who is not eating? And my wife said, ah, everyone is eating. We're eating with my husband, the same plate. <laughs> you know, my brothers walk out of the house. Yeah, they could not withstand the shame. <laughs> because they saw it's a taboo. It's something that has never happened. You know, in Af African culture, they say that sometimes maybe the wife must have bewitched the husband. <laughs> my younger brothers, when they started marrying, they started the same thing. And now when you go to a family, you find they eat the same plate. You find they enjoy together with their children. It's because something that we took that bold step and we started. Not only that, and several other traditions within homes. Even, even sharing the same bedroom, it is a taboo in Maasai. You find a husband has his own bedroom, the wife has his own bedroom. So... Me, I started, no, we're going to have one bedroom. I built my small house and I put one room for sleeping. So, <laughs> so those are the kinds of traditions that actually I broke, but I broke for the good. I broke to bring peace and change in these families. And now when you go to the village, it, Saparingo village is more of becoming a role model village among other villages within the community. It's because of what we are doing as young people and the learned people in this village. So we're setting as an example. I find it really interesting that you spoke earlier about the children who, who found a little elephant calf that was abandoned and they, and they alerted the authorities in the Mara. You know, that's a really big step. 
you spoke about the tra- the older traditions of the Maasai and how you had to hunt a lion, and there really wasn't that sort of awareness of the relationship between people and wildlife and how it could be done in a different way. So to hear you speak about the children now reporting something like a like a lost elephant calf, I think that's really special. You mentioned you were the, f- the first person in your village to work in the Maasai Mara. Do you find that that has changed a lot? Are a lot more people working in the Mara? Are the local communities more aware of conservation and, and the value that it can have for them? Uh, from Saparingo village particularly, I'm, I'm the first one. Immediately when I joined, uh, we started. I started seeing other people coming to Mara, not particularly in Kichwa Temple or in, in or Batilia, but to other uh, properties and working even with the park authorities. And we're stating people are now many. There are many young people working in different departments right now. And that has actually promoted conservation within the community because I'm not the only one now singing the song of conservation. We are now many. It, it has brought a lot of advantage to this community and it is more advantageous to the conservation sector. Immediately when I found this job, you know, what I tell people outside there is that I'm being employed by wild animals. That is my employer, wild animals. If these wild animals were not there, you guys, I could have not been having this job. And that is a reality. And when that message spread in the village, we started seeing guests coming to the village, to the to the school, uh, Saparingo, and we started seeing the fruits. And, and I think that went deeper into the community until everyone now knew that it's for sure because of these wild animals. And secondly... There are some animals that Maasai, if they don't have any interest with it, they don't harm. They don't harm. They just find a way of letting it go. For example, elephant. You know the Maasai, they are not poachers. They don't want even to know what is the value of an elephant tusk. They, they find a way of letting it go where it belongs. And, and, and also, I thank the Mara Triangle Park Authority because they also started the the sensitization in the community when they realize that these elephants get back to the to the village and they also sensitize community the importance of keeping this and the importance of watching these wild animals and right and and because of that little sensitization and also because the Maasai value this animal and they don't even have a bigger interest like the one the task and all of that they just said okay let us let us get this animal and we get where it belongs. And also, you know, these wild animals in the village, they, they act as security guards. Remember, we have cattle rustling in these communities. We have other communities usually come in and steal these cows at night. But when the elephants are closer to your home, no one will come. You sleep peacefully when you hear an elephant next to your window. In fact, that is a lullaby. <laughs> the mass, I love this animal. And we have some funny animals that when you hear them making a funny sound, they have either seen a lion or a person. There's a sound that a zebra make at night. And when you hear that sound, as a man, just get out. Because it's either a lion coming, and that lion can eat that zebra or your cows, or a person is coming. And that person might be probably coming to steal your cows. 
Yeah, so we use this animal as security guards in our home. That's why we love them coming closer to to our home because they they are kind of pro- protectors during nighttime. You told us about some of the challenges that you had when you were going to school, where you had to walk a long way to get to school, and there were there were challenges like wildlife and flooding that could have kept you away from school. When I met you at Better Deer Camp, must have been about two years ago now. Some of the projects that you showed us were connected to education and were new facilities that you were working on building. Has the situation with education in the communities around the Mara changed? And has your own role with Africa Foundation played a part in that? Yeah, uh, well, definitely that is 100%. The the situation has changed. I said earlier on that uh, my school was eight kilometers from my home. And as we speak right now, we have two new schools in between my school and my village. We have Engereri Primary School and we have Saparingo Primary School. These are the areas that didn't have school before. So right now, we have schools closer to our home and closer to other villages. Previously, I could only attend school like once or twice in a week because of the challenges that I, I go through on the way. Sometimes I wake up, elephants are on the way, I come back home. Sometimes it rains, I cannot cross the rivers, I come back home. But right now, things have changed. The three schools, that is my school, and the two new schools are in fact boarding schools. That means children are staying in schools right now. It used to be like no boarding. You work from home. So right now, kids are in schools. So that is another big difference. Apart from having schools closer to home, kids can go and stay in school. Another big change, that is balanced diet. I'm telling you, apart from me walking that long distance, I did not have that balanced diet. The food was not there. I didn't eat lunch for the rest of my primary school because I could only take a cup of milk in the morning, go to school, stay the whole day, Probably if the wild fruits have ripened, I go to the bush during light time, I get on, on top of these trees, eat these wild fruits, come back, drink water, just this flowing water in the stream, come back to class in the afternoon, and I go back home. And when I go back home, the only food I'll find is the same cup of milk. But right now, kids are having all kinds of food. In the morning, they drink tea, 11 o'clock, they drink porridge. Lunch time, they eat like something called kideri or ugali or meat or rice or beans. And then in the evening, they have something different for dinner. They're drinking clean and safe water for drinking. Uh, during my time, there was not this extra learning. Like you can come home, you have a room for study, you have a room to do your refusal. <laughs> nothing low, nothing like that during during my time. But look at now. You can't imagine in my place there is a table for my children to do their homework. Something that is very unique, that's something that is a total change. When, for example, this COVID-19 came recently, some homestay, uh, some parents are providing online studies to their children. At least a teacher can send homework in WhatsApp. People are joining WhatsApp group and a teacher can just do a live teaching 
and send a video clip to the group and and you have your phone and just put somewhere and your children can follow it at home okay most people could not afford it because of the bundle and the poor internet connectivity but at least people who can who have smartphone you go to where there is internet you download the video and you take to your children that big change that actually have come and there's less challenges compared to my time and, and 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 that is the message i give to these children wherever i get time to address them that you they have a great opportunity and they have no reason why they should not excel in their studies and i'm just feeling that uh, probably I'll, uh, in my my next job is to become a motivational speaker because i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm seeing myself every now and then when i go to this school I want to go during light time when I find them in the hall so that I get just five minutes to address them. And and I'm seeing my talking becoming more fruitful to them because for sure they have the great opportunity. And when I give my own example and the example of some other few individuals who have gone through the same challenges that I went through because I know I'm not the only one. There are others. But the few who persevered the challenges are very successful right now and they're becoming role models in their communities. It's a really good thing to be doing and to, to have that kind of example to look to. Simon, I know that Africa Foundation, when, when Africa Foundation works on projects, it's because those projects have been prioritized by the community. The fact that there's been so much focus on education projects um, in the areas around the Mara do you think that's because attitudes towards education have changed in the communities? Or do you still sometimes find that there are challenges that you have to persuade parents about the benefits of education and to actually allow their children to come to school? You know, when these communities identify this project, in this region, most of them identify project regarding education. And the reason why they do that, it's because they have seen the real fruits of education. The culture of keeping livestock is going away. The reason being is the land is becoming very small, the grazing land. There is increase in population in Maasai land. We are getting other communities coming within us. So the population is increasing in every village. That means the land for grazing is becoming very small. And now, food from the cow is not dependable anymore. If you don't have land for, to graze many cows, you have to reduce. That means you will not have enough food. And now the alternative for this is for people to study. Because now you need money to buy another food, a different food that is not from the cow. And where do you get this money? Unless you study and get a good job. So these communities actually have realized that in the near future, they will not depend on cows only anymore. They'll have to find any other source of food. And that source of food will only come if people have gone to school, they have get skills, they can work, they can do cultivation, or they can do their manual uh, jobs like other jobs apart from looking after livestock. And that's the only way they can earn income 
for them to buy food for themselves. So in the identification of these projects, the reason why they highly concentrate on school is because they've seen for them to succeed in the future, they, highly, they want to make sure that a school has all the components that the school requires for a, for a child to be successful. That is the boarding facility, the dining hall, enough classroom, the desk, the ablution blocks, the books, everything that a school requires. That's why they want to make sure that a school at least has everything so that their kids at least get uh, learning well and they can prosper in in future and get like be successful people. And, and, and that's why they choose to select most projects in schools. Uh, apart from, though they also have other projects like water projects, the health projects, but mostly I can say above Uh, 70% are school projects. So the traditional attitudes are definitely changing and and the value of education is being realized. Exactly, exactly, definitely, yeah. Yeah. I know part of the way the Africa Foundation works is that it's very important for the community to have a sense of ownership in the project and to eventually take it over and manage it themselves. What are some of the ways that you ensure that that is happening? Yeah, I make sure that I sit in those sittings when they are doing this project identification. Because one, I have to educate them on the Africa Foundation methodology. That Africa Foundation will not own the project forever. Africa Foundation only own the project during the implementation process. And in fact, they don't even own 100%. They own, like, they just participate in making sure that this project is running uh, smoothly until the hand of a time. So what I tell them that make sure that whenever you identify a project, you identify a project that you know that you'll be in a position to maintain or you'll be in a position to own it in future. Uh, secondly, we also involve all the government relevant entities. For example, if it is any project that is being done in school, we make sure that the Department of Education is in forth from the beginning to the end. Because when we hand over this project to the community, the government will now come back together with the community and make sure that this project is sustained. If it is a classroom, for example, we did five classrooms at Tiltolish, I think three years ago. And immediately when we hand over, there was a big storm and a big wind came and it blew off the whole roof, you see, the whole roof completely. And that one just immediately after we, we handed off. And you know what? The community came up. They went to other well-wishers. In fact, they didn't even come back to, to us. They went to other well-wishers. They went to the government. They went to the politician. They contributed their cows. They sold their cows until they put up enough money. It was more than, it was around 1.5 million Kenya shilling. And the community mobilized that fact and they put back that roof. If we didn't educate them that this is your project, definitely that community could have left that classroom for Africa Foundation and then beyond to come back and repair. But because of the good sensitization and good teaching about our methodology, they realize that it's no longer an Africa Foundation project, it is our project. The good thing that 
the tragedy happened during holiday time. So the kids were not in school. And in fact, within two weeks, the community mobilized the resources and they put back the roof. When the school reopened, kids came back to school. Some even knew that uh, this tragedy happened, but they just saw the, the torn iron sheet and all of that in the compound. That's what made them to realize that, oh, there was a blue in school. But otherwise, this community worked hard to make sure that they put back that roof. And that shows that the community really knew the sense of ownership. Yeah, that's quite extraordinary. It shows the success yeah. That, yeah. that if people are that involved in a project, they're going to make it work. Yeah. And this is one example where the community actually raised the yeah, resources yeah, yeah, to, to yeah. do some repair work. But most of the projects, especially at the beginning, they're actually founded through Africa Foundation. Where do the funds come from? How does that yeah. fundraising happen? What is the role that you play in it? In identification of this project, you know, we, we have a long list, for example, of projects, but we identify one project in this community as a star project. And this particular project, it means this is the current project in all these communities that is actually in greatest need. And once we have this star project, I also educate the staff at Kichwa Temple and Batliakam. I update them on a regular basis on our star project. Most of our funds come from the guests that comes to and beyond Kichwa Temple and Batliakam. During my, my talk to the guests, and also from the guides, they share this story. They share the success story. They share uh, the challenges in this community. And they talk more of about this particular STAR project. And we usually get those guests who want to go and see this project. And once they go there, other donate toward this particular STAR project. And they can donate here at the lodge, or even they can go back at their home and they can donate while at home. So the donation comes from the guests here who visit us here at the lodge, or even we have the other teams working outside. Like we have the teams, uh, fundraising team in South Africa, we have fundraising teams in USA, and we have the fundraising team in the UK. So once we have this project on the list, we have our star project, everyone including the butlers, including the guides, including the managers, they will be talking about this particular STAR project. And once this project is 100% fully funded, we move to the next. We go and sit with the community. We say this project is fully funded and it is in the implementation process. And then we select another STAR project together with the community and, other, uh, and also the staff here at the lodge because they help me hugely. We go to those meetings together. We've spoken a lot yeah. about education, but I yeah. know that there are a lot of different needs in the communities. And I'm sure that the situation now with COVID-19 has also influenced yeah. them. Can you speak a little bit about what are the projects that you're focusing on right now? What I can say is that uh, the COVID-19 has actually brought uh, a negative impact to, to our communities because we have those communities that actually again depend on the guest visit to, to their 
to their cultural homes. When guests visit this cultural home, there's usually a fee that they pay. And apart from that fee, they also buy their ornaments, the beaded items from their masses. And, and this money actually is being usually used for food, clothing, and school. School fees paying. But since the pandemic came, there were no guests. This means this community actually have no any other source of income apart from going back to their livestock. All the marketplaces have been closed. There's nowhere you can sell your cow, nowhere you can sell your goat or sheep because they say that in the market, people can actually transmit the, the, the virus easily. So they close all the markets. Then the communities were left nowhere to run to. And then they came back because we've been working together. They came back to us and to Africa Foundation, particularly here at Kichwa Tembo. And they said, look, find a way of trying to support us because we are in a crisis right now. We can't sell our cows. We don't have guests visiting our homes. So we don't have any other source of income. So we started a project of food program to these villages. And, and as we speak right now, we, we have already supplied food parcels just last month to 90 households, uh, impacting lives of 584 people. Because we did, uh, I went to every household, counting how many children are inside and all of that. So, and we are doing again, uh, we try to do like, if possible, every month, depending now on the availability of funds to support uh, these 90 households. Because the, nine, the 90 households that, that actually we're supporting are the most needy one. That means one, probably they don't have someone working somewhere. So there is no one, there is no any income coming to that particular household. That is the, bas- the, the first uh, basis that we're looking at for selecting this household. So it means they're not receiving any income somewhere else. That means they cannot sell, they cannot buy any food, and they cannot also sell their livestock because the markets are closed. We are doing supply of personal protecting equipments to the Emuruto Health Center. The Emuruto Health Center is the closest health center here in Mara. So we're just getting prepared in case of any COVID positive test here in Mara. And we thank the government because the government has actually come up and they're also working with us. They have added two more doctors in that particular health center. They used only to be one doctor. But when this COVID came and the government went through all the health centers in the country, here in Mara, Emurutoto Health Center was one of the top well-prepared health centers for the COVID case. The government saw that there's a need to add more doctors, so they added two more doctors. And we make sure that we, we work with the water, water project. We brought water all the way from the Murutoto water pan, and we have constant water supply at the health center also, just to make sure that there will be known any day that they'll see that there's no water in that particular health center. Those are the current projects that uh, we are actively working right now. 
And if any of our listeners would like to contribute towards those projects, they can do that through the website. Is that right? Yes, they can do that uh, just to go to the Africa Foundation website. You can follow all the instructions at the website to support. The website is africafoundation.org. Yeah, www.africafoundation.org.za. So for the time being, you're focused on the on the relief efforts for COVID-19 and the STAR projects and all of that. Those will resume once the immediate need is over. Is that right? Yes, but what we have done on the normal project that we're usually doing, we have subdivided this project into phases. For example, our current STAR project is Iltolish Teachers Accommodation. Because we've done classroom, we have done dormitories and the dining hall. The only, the other star project we're going right now is the Iltolish teachers' accommodation. And we were to do eight rooms for, for eight teachers. That was the plan and that was the budget. That's what we did. But right now, we have subdivided that project into two phases. We will first do the first uh, four units and then later on we will do the other four Units. Reason being is because we're thinking where the donations come from, that it's it's probably not easy now to get the full fund for the eight units. Again, for another project is Saparingo uh, fencing. We had two types of fencing. We have the inter- the external fencing, that is the, the outer perimeter, including the gate house. And we have the internal perimeter whereby we were to divide the dormitories, like divide boys' dormitory from the girls' dormitory and also put the compound for the teachers' houses. We were to do that as one project. But right now, we're only going to do the outer perimeter only plus the gatehouse. And later on, we will do the internal uh, subdivide perimeter. Projects like those ones, we're going to do in two phases, just to define half-half. That will allow us uh, very quickly to see to get funds because we're thinking of where the funds come from. We're thinking how strange it is for some of our donors to probably donate towards this huge amount when, uh, when it is fully funded. If it could have been just normal as usual, that could have been okay. But right now, we've seen that it is wise for us to subdivide for easy fundraising. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, def- I definitely, yeah. definitely hope that things come back to normal very soon um, and that guests are soon coming yeah, back yeah. To, <laughs> to enjoy the Masai Mara and to meet the people that live around us. Definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Simon, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful. You've given us this wonderful glimpse into your life and your culture and into the work that you do. And it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for all this interview and uh, any other time, please welcome. Thank you for listening to and Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.